Our Father, uh, we pray what we've just sung, that we would be able to walk by faith for now and stand uh, on the promises of your word. So as we come to your word now, uh, would we know that it is true, that it is powerful, uh, that whatever else we see with our eyes, uh, this thing remains true, that you have spoken good news to us uh, in your son. Bless us, therefore, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. Uh, we're continuing our, our series this morning in the book of Exodus, and particularly, uh, we've got to the Ten Commandments. And this morning, the Seventh Commandment, which very simply says, do not commit adultery. Okay, that's the commandment we're thinking about this morning. Do not commit adultery. Um, that would be rather a short reading, and it'd be good to hear more of God's word than whatever that is, four words. Uh, so I want to read two passages. One's down there on the sheet. The other, I forgot to tell to Rachel who put the sheet together. And that is from Matthew chapter 5. So let's start there, and then we're going to go back to Genesis 2. Matthew chapter 5, on page 810 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, 8, 10, and again, joining Jesus as we did last week in the Sermon on the Mount, his preaching uh, to the disciples and those who gathered around him on that mountain. Uh, in many ways, echoing Moses. Remember Moses at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments. He's on a mountain, and here's Jesus on a mountain. Moses has the 12 tribes gathered. Jesus has the 12 disciples. It's a deliberate echo. Matthew 5 and verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, those are the words of Jesus. Let's turn back to Genesis 2. Uh, right at the beginning, Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So we're on page 2 of the church Bibles. And I'll read from verse 15. Genesis 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why did COVID scare so many people last year? What was scary about COVID? Uh, particularly in the early, early days, okay, when everyone was sort of unsure about the seriousness and the effect and all the rest of it. What, what was scary about it? Well, I think one of the things that made it scary in the early days was that you can't see it. You don't know as you walk into Sainsbury's whether the air you're breathing is healthy, clean, you know, red smelly air pumped out by the Sainsbury's aircon system or whether it's full of little COVID particles getting their way into your, your lungs. It was an enemy, a danger, but one of which we were totally unaware, unable to see, unable to realise even if it had already got into us. And in fact, as many of us then found out, it was quite possible to, to realise you were already infected with COVID long after you'd actually first breathed it in. In that sense, COVID is, is, is a good illustration of religion. Um, religion is something you just breathe in from the air around you, the, the cultural air, as it were. Now, if we were in, I don't know, Saudi Arabia this morning, it would be very obvious to you what other religions are trying to pull on your heart, what other religions are trying to kind of call you into them. You would literally have heard a call to prayer um, a couple of days ago. Okay, uh, come to the mosque. Come uh, to Allah and his true prophet Muhammad. It would be very obvious from the way people dressed, from the things you, you saw on the TV or listened on the radio, the people you, you talked to on the street. It would be very obvious that the main dominant religion around you, if you lived in I know, Mecca or Medina or whatever, was well, Islam. And of course, you do the same thing. You could be in Gujarat and it would be Hinduism. You could be in Jerusalem and it would be Judaism. Or you could be up in the, the mountains of, of Nepal or whatever and it would be, be Buddhism. But what about in England? What about in Leeds? What is the, the, the cultural air? What is the religion most likely to draw you in away from Jesus? What is the dominant religion of, of Leeds? I think many of us would say, well, well there isn't one. Oh, there's a few Christians here, there's a few Muslims here, um, Sikhs and Hindus, a few Jews. And, but, you know, basically people in Leeds are, are not religious. And that's where the COVID illustration really kicks in. Because they are. All people are religious, inescapably. It's just that the religion that dominates Leeds, and indeed most of the UK at the moment, it is an invisible one. It's one that kind of pretends it isn't religion. It's one, therefore, you don't see one person's called it expressive individualism. Okay, that's a bit fancy, expressive individualism. I'm just going to call it me-ism, okay? Because 
smaller brain. Me, that is, not you. Meism. And I want to start by thinking about it a little this morning because it particularly impacts how we hear this commandment. I suspect this commandment of all of them is, is potentially the most offensive. Do not commit adultery. Particularly when we remember or we hear Jesus' words that this isn't just about what you do with your body as a married man or woman, but also about our desires. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about lusting, about how we think. This, this commandment goes all the way down. But this meism, this expressive individualism, it, it's been the growing religion for perhaps 300 years or so in the West. Now, I'm really, if you're not from the UK, um, I realise you might have grown up in a totally different context. So stay, stay with me, pardon me for a little bit. Um, it'd be interesting to hear your own experiences of how things work out in your own upbringings. But, but because in England it's, it's, it's never named itself as a religion, it's been more subtle. It's grown like kind of weed, if you like. Three prophets... Uh, it's not just England, it's all across Europe, of course, and America as well. Um, the first, about 300 years ago, there was a, a movement called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment basically said, three guys like Rousseau and, and others, you've got to be yourself. We've got to throw off the shackles of religion. Before that, at least outwardly, it seemed that, that, that the UK was a, or England as it was then, uh, was, a, was a, a sort of Christian country. You, know, you did what the Bible said. Of course, loads of people didn't believe. That's always human nature. But outwardly, culturally, we were meant to trust revelation. But the Enlightenment said, no, no, no. These philosophers like Rousseau and others grew up and said, no, no, you've got to believe what comes from within. Follow your heart, in other words. Be yourself. Uh, one of them used the illustration of, of, of a tree. He said, human beings are like trees. We, we've just got to grow and, and throw off any kind of attempt to curb us or, or chop us. You know, children, have you ever seen those trees that are kind of shaped like, you know, maybe someone cuts their head into the shape of a chicken or a, I don't know, a train or something like that? None of that. Don't let society shape you or religion shape you or your priest shape you or just grow and see what happens. In other words, follow your heart. It's basically the same religion as... Princess Elsa, is that right? Let it go, okay? Don't be the good girl they tell you to be. Throw it all off. Okay, just follow your heart. Be yourself. And then 100 or so late, years later, along came Karl Marx. We, we think of him as you know, about communism and that sort of thing. But, but fundamentally, Marx said, look, the, the whole of history you can understand is, as a fight between the oppressors and the oppressed. Okay, the dominators and the victims. And if you're in the oppressed group, you've got to rise up and throw off the oppressors. Now he was into class conflict and economics and all sorts of stuff we don't even think about this morning. But that pattern of oppressed and oppressors as a way of understanding the world has really got into our, our, our sort of psyche. And in particular, the idea that we've got to just free ourselves. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do, what to think, what to believe, how to behave. Be free. So if Rousseau in the Enlightenment said, be yourself, Marx came along and said, yeah, and free yourself. Throw off all these horrible institutions that, that shut you down. And then a third figure came along. Sigmund Freud taught all sorts of very odd stuff. But for our purposes this morning, one of the things that Freud held was the, the, the real you, the centre of you was your sexuality, as he called it. And that you'll never be able to be yourself and free yourself until you express yourself sexually. That deep down is your identity. Your sexuality, your sex drive is much more fundamental to you, said Freud, than 
your family or your skin color or the language you'll speak or your upbringing or your education or really anything else about you. So this religion, this meism, be yourself, free yourself, and then express yourself, particularly sexually, has grown and grown and grown like kind of bindweed across the, the country. It got into the church, and people in the church started saying, well, hmm, I, I, you know, if I'm going to be myself, I, if I'm absolutely honest, I, I don't like bits of Paul. I quite like Jesus, but I don't like bits of Paul's letters. So I'm going to pull those out of the Bible. We're not going to focus on them too much. It got into the church as people started saying, well, all that stuff about sin sounds very constricting. Sounds like we are cutting the hedge and, and let, let's just get rid of that. And it's, of course, everywhere in society. Now, not because we read Rousseau and Marx and Freud, but we listen to the evangelist. We see the Lloyd's Bank advert. Have you seen the Lloyd's Bank advert? Um, he said yes. Here's the tagline. It's both a, a TV advert and a, a sort of picture. He said yes. And the twist is that it's one guy down on his knee proposing to another guy. That's not making an argument. It's just presenting two nice-looking, happy-looking guys getting engaged. He said yes. The whole picture is joyful. The, movie, the little mini-movie is joyful. It's meant to make you think, how could anyone be against that? How can anyone say they shouldn't do that? What kind of heartless dictator must you be to want to curb that love, love is love. Be yourself, free yourself, express yourself. We learn it from, from sitcoms, friends, modern family, whatever it is you're into, where people, I realize my cultural references are so out of date, by the way, so you just kind of sort of fill in your own kind of, um, although some of the things I was into as a kind of 20 something, and now they're kind of retro cool, so I'm, I'm sort of coming back into fashion, I think. Um, anyway, those kind of TV programs where people can just hook up with all sorts of people, left, right, and center, and there's no damage doesn't matter you can bounce from bed to bed to bed pile to pile but it's okay it's fine it's expressing yourself it's a happy life and of course this religion this meism follow me has commandments like all religions do in particular you shall not repress others don't you dare tell someone their choices are wrong particularly their sexual choices because that is to attack them it's not just to disagree, you know, you like Man United, I like Liverpool. It's to attack their very being because at heart we are sexual beings because we bought into this lie of Freud. So don't repress others and don't repress yourself. You must be free. If it's within, it's good. And then in walk Moses and Jesus. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, if you commit, uh, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And you see why they're so unpopular. They're not just disagreed with, but they're evil. The dominant religion of our country hears those words and says, not just, no, it's not me, but that is evil because it is an attack on our very identity. Unless we're allowed to express ourselves, be ourselves, free ourselves and express ourselves sexually, then we are being attacked, oppressed, and we must throw off those kind of people. And that is why in institutions from universities down to primary schools, in sort of campaigns to get you wearing certain coloured lanyards and all the rest of it, it is sexuality that drives so much. How many times have you been asked to wear a lanyard to care for the persecuted Uyghur Muslims in China? Never. 
They're being put into internment camps. There are all sorts of horrors going on. Who cares? What really matters is my sexual expression because identity is found in sexuality in our culture. If you're going to walk in line with what Jesus teaches, therefore, you're not just going to be disagreed with. Okay, this is a huge shift in mindset. And if you're slightly older, it, it, you know, it's basically happened in your lifetime, really. Even maybe my lifetime, probably. Oh, the, the shift is, is, is Christians have gone from being people who we disagree with. Okay, they've got a seat at the table. You think that, you think that, you think that, you think that. I don't really agree with the Christian thing. Christians now, if they hold to the teaching of the Bible, are going to be thought of as bad people because they are Christians. Not wrong people. I mean, you're wrong as well, but bad. And that's why you daren't express opinions on certain things in the pub. Okay? You daren't, even if you're with Christian friends, say things in case you get overheard, don't you? You know that. You can't express certain opinions because the, the laws are against it. I don't mean the laws of the country, but the kind of cultural religion. It'll be like sitting, and you can't sit in a pub in Mecca, can you? But it'll be like sitting in, I don't know, a coffee house in, in Mecca and saying, well, I'm not into this Allah guy. Not a huge fan of Muhammad. Like, you'd never dare say it because you know you're going to get pounced on. We de- live in a deeply religious country and meism is the religion. And in comes God and says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Why the seventh commandment? Is he just restrictive? Well, no. God is a God of love. We could have read in 1 John, God is love. In the heart of his very being, in fact, at the heart of ultimate reality is a God who is love. Just let those words sink in. God is love. Ever since we've, we fled the Garden of Eden, we've looked at God and feared. I see his might, his power, his holiness, and all those things are true. But I run away because I fear that he is not good. He is not loving. But then we read God is love. And Jesus comes to earth and if he's like he's love covered in flesh. Love enfleshed. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit all loving each other from all eternity. Remember that God is triune, three but one, three persons, one God. Father loving the Son and the Spirit, Spirit loving the Son and the Father, fill in the rest. Love is at the heart of who God is. And so loving is he that he wanted to share this love with us, that we might know his love. And so he made the world. And as he did so, he called us to be loyal to him, to love him and to experience and know his love is supreme. He wasn't being restricted. Restrictive, therefore, when he says, listen to me, let me alone be your God. What what he was wanting is to make sure we were drinking in his love and not running from it and trying to sort of find stuff elsewhere. Children, a a few weeks ago, I went went to Prague and it was a work trip, um, but we did have the odd break. And uh, they, they had these amazing shops. Um, I, can't, I shouldn't use this illustration in front of my children, actually, but uh, we had, they had these amazing shops, just barrels of sweets. Okay, barrels about this high, about waist high, just full of sweets. Okay, multicolored sweets, kind of bendy things, all sorts of things you could possibly imagine. Now imagine going to one of those shops, and uh, on the floor, a dog has made some mess, okay, dog mug. And imagine the owner saying, you are only allowed to eat from the sweet barrels. Only the sweet barrels. You are not allowed to eat that dog mug. This is a commandment. And if you break it, I will punish you. How would you hear that commandment? Would you think, what a horrible owner? 
What is he doing being so exclusive? Who's he to tell me what I can and can't eat? What if I want to eat the dog poo instead of the sweets? No, you wouldn't, would you? Okay, it's a command, but it's a command that's meant to bless you. Well, God, when he says, no, live for me alone, let me alone be your, your God, come and know my love, he's not being tight and restrictive, he wants to bless us. And to show that, he gives us this gift of marriage. It's what we read about in Genesis 2. Uh, verse 24, if you like, almost defines marriage for us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Three parts of it. Leaving. The, fa- the, the, the man leaves his father and mother. Then there's a, a, a cleaving. Okay? Holds fast to his wife. That is a clinging word. Imagine just grabbing onto something you don't want to let go to. You'll never let go to your favorite toy, your favorite toy. You're grabbing it, you will not let go. There's a joining in marriage of this man and this woman. And then there's a union. They become one flesh, a physical union. And therefore, this, this marriage that God gives is meant to be exclusive, just one-on-one. You're not meant to invite someone else into it or share your heart with other people. Share your body with other people. It is exclusive. Why? Because this marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 5. We won't turn there now. But he says this actually, he quotes these verses and says this is actually about Christ and the church. It's not that God looked down and thought, oh, I need a good illustration of something. And, you know, oh, look, those human beings love each other and are married. Oh, I tell you what, I love you a bit like marriage. No, it was the other way around. I love you, God said. And I'm going to give my son and bind him to you. And to help you understand what that looks like, I'm going to create marriage as a picture of an even greater love, an even greater union. And so marriage is meant to be exclusive because God's relationship with his people is exclusive. It's not you and lots of other gods. It's not you plus Jesus plus Baal plus Dagon plus Allah plus Krishna plus, no, just you and God. It's meant to be permanent because God doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't chop and change. So if our marriage is going to image God's relationship to his people, we we can't churn through partners because God doesn't do that. And it's meant to be a union of two different beings. God and man. It's not God and God. It's not humanity and humanity. It's God and man that is the ultimate reality. And therefore, male, female, Christ and his church. The church is pictured as female in the Bible for this reason, the bride. Christ and the church, bringing together God and man. And therefore, marriage is, is other, hetero, to use the, the, the Greek word, man and woman. It's the joining of two different people. And so God will say at various times in the Old Testament that he's like a husband to his people. Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. Hear that this morning. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. I am your husband. And marriage is meant to image that. And that's why this commandment is so important. So we commit adultery. So adultery, literally, you know, you go and sleep with someone who is not your spouse. That is breaking the exclusivity. Whereas God wants you to know his love exclusively. 
The commandment is more than just a commandment for married people, though. Any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage would be breaking this commandment. So that the guy who just sleeps around. Well, that is not permanent, is it? That's not leaving and cleaving. It's just bouncing from one person to the next. But that's not what God's love is like. So sexual activity in that context is not a good sign and not a picture of the gospel. And of course, does us damage. I'm not going to have time this morning to speak about the damage that breaking the commandment does. But of course, anytime we go away from the way God has told us to live, we are doing harm to ourselves because God wants to bless us. Now, some of you will be in relationships, uh, no doubt, not married, but in relationships. Uh, a very common question is, how, you know, how far can we go? What are we allowed to do? What's okay? Well, just look at that verse 224. A marriage is, is when you leave, cleave, and then become one flesh. So, until you have done that, left your parents' homes, been bound together, there's no becoming one flesh. Or if you want me to put it really bluntly, until, speaking to the guys, until you are married to your girlfriend or fiancé, whatever, okay, she is still in her father's home. So you don't want to be doing anything, you wouldn't be happy, her father sat on the sofa next to you, watching. She's still his daughter in his home. There's no leaving, cleaving yet. Again, meism, this modern religion says, you've got, to, you've got to learn to express yourself. It's natural. You've got to grow in these things. Find out if you're compatible, if you're... Nonsense. Nonsense. Of course, any form of sexual activity that isn't between husband and wife is being ruled offside by this commandment. And that includes desires that are illegitimate. It is, of course, uh, fine for a married woman or man to find their husband attractive. Sex is not a bad thing. God is not against sex. But he wants it to be used rightly. If I was to go to the, I don't know, the Louvre and the Mona Lisa okay, with a crayon and just start adding some additions, you know, just, I thought I'd touched up a little bit with a, you know, this, that, and the other, and someone you know, pulled me off, and I said, look, why are you so against art? Yeah, that wouldn't be a valid defence, would it? Or similarly, when we try and use sex in all these other ways, and God comes and says no, it's not because he's anti-sex, it's because we're using it wrongly, damagingly. And Jesus shows this commandment goes all the way down. Lust. Not wrong to find someone attractive, of course, that's ultimately how people end up married. But we know, we know the difference, don't we, between just noticing someone is attractive and the kind of mental lingering uh, the fantasizing, the undressing, or whatever it may be. It touches on the fact that it's our desires that are corrupt. Our hearts, it doesn't matter who or what we find ourselves attracted to, we're all corrupt in this way. We've all broken this commandment. Now, let me just say something on desire here. Uh, there is a, um, slightly bizarrely, there's a growing movement in English evangelicalism, actually, I, I didn't quite know why, but for some reason, in English evangelicalism, amongst people who are just otherwise really good people, who've begun to say that actually, as long as you don't act on your desires, they don't matter. Desires are neutral. It's only actions that really matter. But that's just not true. There are illegitimate desires and legitimate desires. If I, as a married man, desire my wife, that's okay. 
It's good, in fact. Perhaps you're thinking about, you know, you're single and you're thinking about getting married, you find someone pretty or handsome or whatever. That's totally legit. Okay, don't fantasize about it, don't lust, but it's all right. But there are those who beginning, particularly in, in res- response to the homosexual marriage uh, issue, who've begun to say that actually, as long as you don't act on it, desire is okay. I've spoken to somebody about this before, a student, so at an event not long ago, uh, where the speaker, who's a, a good evangelical, really, he's a brother, he's a good guy, but he said this, when I'm wowed by another man's looks, it's a man speaking, when I'm wowed by another man's looks or fall in love with them, because I'm wired that way, I'm being given an insight into how passionately God loves me. My sexuality there isn't a curse, but a chance to see how much he loves me. So God isn't saying to me, lock that desire away, but see how much I love you. See, he's, he's making that argument. He's taking that truth that, that marriage and sex are a picture of God's love for us and applying it to his attraction towards people of the same sex. That is not okay. That is not okay. You see, the argument, the argument is desire or sexuality is neutral as long as you don't indulge it. But we have corrupt desires. We all do. Okay, it's not a homosexuality, heterosexuality thing. It's just a truth. I mean, try substituting in something else. Okay, as a married man, when I'm wowed by another woman's looks, it's a reminder how much God loves me. Well, that wouldn't be okay, would it? When I, there's various categories of immorality in the Bible. You know, when we marry those who are too closely related to us, uh, married, uh, try and have sexual relations with another species, an animal or something. Imagine putting that in. When I'm wowed by my feelings towards my brother. Does that make it okay? Just because it's a design? Of course not. All of us are corrupt right down to the heart. So why do we break this commandment? If that is what the commandment does, and it, if we're honest, this one makes most of us feel very guilty very quickly. Why do we break it? Because we do keep breaking it all the time, don't we? Well, it's because we breed in this, this religion of meism, following my desires, I am God. I should do what I fear, what I think. Be yourself, free yourself, express yourself. So the guy who's, and I don't want to be graphic here, but the guy who spends hours and hours looking at images on the internet, you know what I'm talking about. Why, why does he go there? There could be lots of reasons. But fundamentally, it's because they've got a God complex. Amizam says, you ought to have what you desire. Your urges deserve to be met. And nothing should hinder that. So online, I can find some women who, who do what I want. I type in and they do what I want, as it were. I can find videos where essentially I am choosing, I am in control. I feel like I am the creator. No one says no to me. They might do in real life. I'm not getting what I want in real life. I've suppressed that because I'm you know, Christian, so I don't want to sort of go out to the clubs every night trying to hook up or anything. But, so in real life, I suppress it, but deep down it's what I desire. And so in the dark enclaves of the internet, suddenly I can be God. People doing what I want. I choose or the husband who, at some level, thinks, I, I just don't have the respect I deserve. Suddenly, there on the internet are people who will look at him admiringly, adoringly. It's all fake, of course. But he's like a little sultan with his harem. I am God. Look at the way these people look at me. Or the wife daydreaming about another woman's husband. 
the one who would really cherish me, care about me in a way that mine doesn't. They're creating this little universe that would be better than this one. Breaking the commandment to get there, indulging in this mental sin, but it's okay because I deserve it. If I was a creator, this is the world that ought to exist. All of, all of them are the same thing to different degrees and in different ways. They're saying God isn't good. This is not how God, this is not how the world ought to be. It would be better if things happened this way. It should be meism, not God. Be yourself, free yourself, express yourselves. Or in other words, we only ever commit adultery, physical adultery or mental adultery because we've already committed spiritual adultery. We're not happy. We've not got enough, we think, in Christ. God is not good. He's not given enough. There's not enough pleasure in him, joy in him. It's not worth living by faith to trust that one day everything will be unbelievably great. I'm going to live by sight, by feeling, by experience now and indulge. I deserve it. But as we close, how does God respond? Stay with that passage, Genesis 2. I mean, this is serious, isn't it? Remember Jesus' words, cut out your eye. I think I've told the, the story before, but I, uh, not of this, not in Leeds, but I remember someone uh, telling me that they, um, uh, they worked in a place where there'd be lots of sort of, um, there'd be lots of temptations to, to, to lust, but like that. And so they, they wouldn't wear their, their contacts, so they just couldn't see. It's a brilliant application of it. Can't actually tear out your eye. Jesus isn't actually saying tear out your eye. Obviously, you don't get maiming yourselves. But it's a great way. Okay, I'm going to resist that temptation. There's all sorts of practical things you can do, and I'm not going to talk this morning about I don't know, internet filters and all the rest of it because we've got more serious work to do. I think. How does God respond? Look at Genesis two. Therefore, verse twenty-four: A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Paul says that's a picture of Christ and the church, Jesus. How does he respond to all of us in our corruption? And each one of us is guilty of this commandment this morning. Don't think that if you're addicted to internet pornography or, or you've had an affair or you've been going too far with your partner, don't think you're the only one. All of us have broken this commandment. How does Jesus look down at us? What does he do? He leaves his father in heaven and he comes down and clings to his bride, the church. He clings to you. He knows what you're like and still he wants you. He wants to save sinners. That verse we had earlier in the, in the service. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save porn addicts. To save adulterers. To save the lustful. To save those who, who know their desires are not good. Imagine a bride. And she's, um, throughout her life she's been promiscuous and she's marrying a guy who's always kept himself pure and she feels that the deep guilt and eventually she in fear confesses it to him this is what I've done in my past and he says I love you I love you I forgive you welcome I want to marry you well that is what Christ does when we come to him with this kind of sin but imagine that same bride on, on her wedding night, running off before the wedding, or the eve of her wedding, rather, running off with another man, going back to an old flame, and then having to turn up at the wedding ceremony. And, and the husband looking down the aisle and realizing what's happened. 
She wants to run and flee. But he walks back down the aisle and takes her by the hand and walks her to the altar and says, you are mine. I love you. I will not leave you. I've come from heaven for you. I'm going to cling to you. We're going to be one. I know what you've done, but I forgive you and I love you. Well, that is what Christ has done. You need not flee from him. So as we close, do you see the horror of sexual impurity? It leads you away from God, away from that love of Christ. It, It ruins families and relationships. It corrupts. When Jesus says, better cut out an eye than go to hell, it is serious. Don't play with it. But see the hope, too. Jesus claimed to cleanse you from its guilt and its power. Do you remember that, that hymn, Rock of Ages? Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Jesus died so that all your sin would be paid for. The wrath of God that ought to be poured out on your uncleanness is exhausted on him. He wraps you in a white garment and says you are pure and spotless like a bride on the wedding day. Because it is his garment that he wraps us in, not our own. It's his righteousness that we stand before God in, not our own. But he also, remember this is, all this, verse 24, is a picture of Christ to the church. He becomes one with us. He unites himself to us by the Spirit. And that is an even closer union, ultimately, than the physical union in marriage. We find that hard to believe, don't we? But you are more tightly bound to Jesus than you are to your husband or mouth or wife in the, in the very act of physical union. Again, by faith, not by sight, for now. But that means you do have the power to break free. Because, or rather, Christ has the power to break you free. That's why the Bible says, count yourself dead to sin. If you're stuck in internet images or whatever it may be, the lie is, I cannot get free. Jesus says, look, I have broken you free already. Live out that freedom. Come to me, prayerfully, humbly, and I will help. So see the horror, see the hope, and see your calling. Ultimately, therefore, your, your marriage, if you're married, or if you one day perhaps will be, it's meant to be a picture of the far greater love of Christ for his people. And so in your marriage, you don't need to be taking all the time. So much of meism, that religion we began with, is about what can I get servicing my desires. I have rights. Our culture is obsessed with rights. No one talked about rights 100 years ago. Or even less than that, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, no one talked about rights. It's duties. <laughs> so rather than thinking, well, what is my wife giving me? Or why isn't she giving me this? Why isn't my husband doing this? Actually, I, I can come to Christ and say, look, in you I've got everything I need. And one day I will have that by, by sight rather than just by faith. You have everything for me. And therefore, because I've been loved unconditionally, I can love unconditionally. Yes, my husband isn't as wealthy as I wanted him to be, thoughtful, organized, kind even. My wife isn't as beautiful as she once was or we're not as active sexually as we once were or whatever it is, it's all me, me, me. And we say, no, it doesn't matter. I'm free to love. I've taken many of your weddings and I often end up using the similar illustration. I'm going to use it again. Um, we talk about loving food, don't we? You know, I love roast beef. We don't mean I want what's good for roast beef, which means I love how it makes me feel. That's how the world speaks about love. 
It's about making me feel good. And if you don't, well, I'll get rid of you. Move on. But God's love is permanent, exclusive, and binding. And that's the love that we're meant to show. Commit yourself to your spouse in a way that says, I am for you. That's why your promises were, I will not I do. And the power for all that, breaking free of sin, loving unconditionally, comes from looking at Christ, who has given himself for you, left the glories of heaven, in order that he might bind himself to you, whatever you've done, and welcome you home to heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are guilty. And if we're honest, we don't see most of our guilt. We feel shame. Satan tempts us, therefore, to despair. We feel hopeless. Some of us trapped in patterns of sin. And yet your son has left his father, come down and embraced us. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are righteous in your sight. The power of sin has been broken in us. So help us to live by faith, we pray, and enable us to be those not just who avoid adultery, but who give ourselves in love to all we're called to. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.